Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Today, on the second part of our special bonus episode, we're joined by Kate Zaliznak and Laurie Krill. Kate is the author of The San Francisco Doodler Murders, published this month by the History Press, and Laurie is the editor who acquired the book and steered it through to publication. We're getting a masterclass in how to write a true crime book. Let's jump back in. Kate, there is a small time skip in your account with the first wave of murders happening in sort of 1974, 1975, and then a break of a few years before bodies begin appearing again in 1978 in San Mateo County, south of San Francisco. And at this moment, there are kind of a few key developments in the case that I'd like for you to run through for us. Uh, The first are the small handful of suspects that the SFPD have in fact managed to locate. Who are these folks? So with the Doodler murders, um, there was really one viable suspect um, that they came up with and have questioned um, multiple times back then, and he is still alive, and they continue to question him to this day. Mm. This is someone who sought what they called back then conversion therapy. We no longer use that term because it's giving a false justification to something that is the complete antithesis of therapy. So um, conversion efforts is the term we use now, um, which is basically going to a pseudo-psychologist and having them try to quote-unquote fix you um, for anything other than a heterosexual identity. Mm -hmm. So we have one suspect who this psychiatrist reported to the police as saying that this man confessed and that he matched this sketch. And, you know, this man was also identified by... um, pretty key person in this case. The other two suspects are basically people who I mentioned earlier were repeatedly brought in because they had similar somewhat um, attributes. They were drawing caricatures and um, portraits in the Tenderloin and in the Castro. They looked a little like the the sketch. Mm-hmm. So there were other suspects who were brought in and, and honestly just got to a point. One of them finally had an altercation with one of the officers. Cause he just said, how many times are you going to arrest me and bring me in for something I didn't commit? The suspect that they are still looking at is uh, like I said, still alive and still living in the area. Mm-hmm. So I, it's either it's been under a cloud of, suspicion for decades for something that he didn't commit and also, you know, was going through Hmm. conversion efforts, which are extremely traumatizing or he did it. And because of the consequences that would have come upon the survivors who identified him, he's been able to get away with it. So we really, want to, if nothing else, get an answer on this guy because it's one or the other, you know. Um, And that is probably one of the biggest, the biggest 
question for law enforcement that we really need answers. There's really only that one suspect that uh, so right now looks pretty good, but we'll have to see. Now, in some cases, a person of interest has their identity remain sealed mm-hmm. uh, while they're under investigation. And in other instances, we one of our very first guests, Joshua Sushan, covered a... Uh, a murder in California in which the main person of interest was very well known to members of the community and to law enforcement and so forth. And this person did eventually end up confessing many, many years later. Um, Is the person of interest in your particular case uh, the main suspect? Is their identity confidential or has it been unsealed? It's always been confidential. Um, And even what's interesting is even, you know, when the police and the press were talking about the diplomat. They kind of like hinted. Same thing with the with the survivors. They hinted at, oh, you know, well, Swedish diplomat. Oh, you would know his name, you know, for the entertainer. But for this guy, for their suspect, very limited information. Um, press uh, told the public that his pseudo psychiatrist name was Doctor Priest. Mm-hmm. Um, that was something that people really latched on to. There's a possibility that the um, that Kevin Fagan of the San Francisco Chronicle possibly and, and his team possibly found out who that supposed Dr. Priest is. However, even if it's him, he's passed away. So really at this point, the hope for this case would be more information from either the diplomat or any other witness but most importantly, they have DNA in this case, just like they did with Golden State Killer mm-hmm. um, and just like they did in several really big cases that you're seeing close. Just in the last few weeks all over the mm-hmm. country, there have been some major cases from the 70s and 60s that have been closed. That can happen with this case. If that were to happen with this case, you don't need to ask people to reopen old wounds. You don't need to um, re-victimize people. If we can get more attention on this case and put more pressure on the crime lab to finish their analysis of this DNA, which they started in 2019, Mm -hmm. I think that that is the answer to whether or not this suspect that we've all been talking about, um, you know, and who has been talked about for decades now, whether or not he's innocent. Well, we'll come back to that in a moment. I do want to ask you where the the state of the investigation stands uh, in just a little bit. But tell us about this sort of second wave of murders that began in 1978. There were some key differences between these victims and the first five, possibly six victims that you mentioned earlier. And those differences were not limited just to where just a location, were they, to where these bodies were found? There were some other tangible points of divergence as well. Yes, yes. So um, to start with just the connection, all of these men were linked back to the same districts of the city that the Doodler victims were linked to. Uh, They were all linked also to the gay community. And uh, other than that, though, the differences are they were found far outside of the city, on a road called Tunitas Creek Road, which is near Half Moon Bay for anybody, anybody who's familiar with the area. But it's a, it's a drive, you know, it's an hour and a half from the city, roughly depending on where you're coming from. And these bodies were found wearing only jeans, aside from one victim, they were wearing only, only jeans, nude um, otherwise, 
and strangled. Now, all of these victims, which are five victims, one remains a John Doe. And because of that fact, all of the information on the case has not been released because the the sheriff's office, understandably so, wants to identify this person and notify any living relatives before releasing it to the public. But in these cases, right. the, the difference is, you know, strangulation versus stab wounds. Bodies were dumped. We don't know where the actual murders occurred, whereas the doodler killed people where, you know, he left the bodies. So these bodies were dumped. They were found in a kind of a remote stretch of uh, a road in the Santa Cruz foothills. And police kind of had this immediate reaction in the sense that they knew they had gotten the doodler murders wrong in terms of being able to close the case. They knew that they had a ton of pressure on them for the way they handled LGBTQ murders in general. Mm -hmm. So when this started happening, I will say that there was a response that was very different from the doodler murders. And it was an immediate sort of um, collaboration between SFPD, which again, these victims were located, uh, traced back, last seen in San Francisco. Right there, you need SFPD. And then you need San Mateo. The bodies were found in San Mateo County. So um, as all of us, I'm sure, know, um, jurisdictions working together uh, can be complicated and not always enjoyable for either party and all of that. But from what I've been able to gather, this was a team that I will give credit to in the sense that they they wanted this solved. They did not want another doodler situation. There were other serial killers, like you mentioned, that I talk about in the book. They did not want any of that. Again, they wanted to lock this guy down. Mm-hmm. And they did. You know, we can't – was anybody ever um, tried and convicted? No. But – Reviewing the case, as you'll see in the book, it's it's a pretty solidly closed case. The reason why it's so relevant is to see the evolution of how these cases were handled, right? The, the, Mm -hmm. The evolution of total dismissal. I mean, Gerald Cavanaugh had one line in the paper, you know, body found on Ocean Beach of stab wounds, you know, and that was pretty much it. There was never an article. There's never anything. So it's to see it go from that to having another string of murders happen and have that case be thoroughly investigated pretty much from the start. Um, I view as, Mm. as an evolution of uh, police attitude towards these types of, of homicides. Yeah. Well, there's just something so critical in the, in the sense in which, you know, victims are here now, being seen really for the for the first time, um, just a few short years later, and that that is a, a major turning point. There is a passage, Kate, uh, at the beginning of chapter twenty one that I would love for you to read for us if you have your your copy uh, next to you. And Laurie, I've got a question for you about this particular passage. You just read that first short paragraph for us. In San Francisco, the Doodler case was falling apart, brick by brick. The surviving witnesses would not come forward. Dr. Priest's testimony could not be admitted in court. 
the San Francisco Police Department had linked no physical evidence to a person of interest. No witnesses had officially placed the man Guilford and Sanders suspected at the scene of the murders. The mountain they had climbed to reach the conclusion of these investigations began to collapse in on itself. Though Guilford and Sanders were confident the victims were murdered by a man who impressed them with his artwork, no drawings were ever recovered. Even worse, gay men started to go missing from the Castro again. Then came the phone calls. More bodies had been found. Thank you. The, this moment is presages what you've just told us about, the kind of the emergence of these new bodies in, in San Mateo. Um, and I wanted to ask you about this because moments like this in the narrative for writers and for readers alike are incredibly useful. I like to think of them as sort of signposts. They're, they're moments in the flow of the narrative that kind of tell us where we're at. They, they're a rest stop, kind of a chance to catch our breath really from the sort of unrelenting pace of new information. Laurie, my question here for you is, as you're working with a manuscript, do you make a point of asking authors to provide these to us? Or is this something, these rest stops, these sort of stock takes, as it were, are these things that you allow the author to bring really at their own discretion? Yeah, I would say most of the time. And I just checked the manuscript that I set your comments back on. Um, Kate was excellent at encapsulating uh, her opening and closings of her chapters were always very strong. So, which is very important, Mm. especially for this type of book. You have to really ground the reader into the place and time that you're talking about before you go into any major details. You, you know, it's always important to remind them of what they've learned without, you know, going too far into that. Um, And then closing it out with kind of a, and then this is what's going to happen next. Um, And Kate already had a really strong sense of that in this book. A lot of the times, if I find myself, uh, kind of drifting away from the central story as a reader, I will mm-hmm. point that out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes this, one of the most common things that happens is that something really interesting as an aside will happen in the story that doesn't really have like a lot to do with the specific topic that we're talking about, but it's totally interesting, which, you know, is hard mm-hmm. for authors to resist kind of trying to include that in the, the majority of the story, but it, it just doesn't, um, it, it distracts. So one of the most important things I do is be like, we need to condense this half a chapter about someone else into just the details that pertain to this case. Because otherwise, like, you know, everyone's life story is different and, and everyone's kind of got these really interesting little tidbits that you'd love for the readers to know, but that might be a different book. So you really have to, refocus um, and make sure that everything that you're writing down serves the purpose of the book that you are writing currently. And sometimes that means cutting stuff that's fantastic, you know, great writing and really interesting information. It just doesn't fit the book. So I think that's one of the hardest things to do in, in terms of editing is just be like, yeah, this, this is great. But it's, it doesn't, it shouldn't be in this book. 
save it for another time, save it for another book, save it for, you know, a talk about the book. Always a great place to go on, on some, you know, asides that you weren't able to do in the book. But in this specific book, it doesn't belong. But in regards to that particular passage, that was all Kate. She's just really a good writer. How many darlings did you have to kill, Kate, <laughs> in the making of this manuscript? Uh, you know, a lot. But before they made it, into, it, luckily before they made it into the manuscript, you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a bloodbath when I got it back. Um, I will say there there are things in the book that I really really um, made sure to ask myself a million times each day. It's just absolutely essential. Mm. And the reasons why other cases, both solved and unsolved, are covered in this book is because we have such a complete lack of broader information when it comes specifically to the Doodler case, that the only thing that's of help is looking at other cases where perhaps you can get ideas as to what is going on with the Doodler. Because he is an outlier. He is not a Ted Bundy. He is not a Samuel Little. He is a different kind of of uh, being all together. So is there, are there any cases that exactly line up with his? No. But is it important to look at cases where gay men were targeted? Um, is it, it's important to look at who was doing the targeting? What was behind that? Um, and trying to, especially when all these things are happening pretty much at the same time. You know, the doodler was mm -hmm. not the only man, uh, the only serial killer of gay men in the 70s. It's kind of shocking how many there were. I had to be selective and pick just a few to kind of look at. Um, so, yeah, taking exactly kind of what Laura's saying is that it's very easy to go way wide with the story, right? So I really wanted to include elements that maybe weren't specifically tied to the Doodler case, but would be helpful to the reader to kind of get that knowledge of how these cases in general work and how sometimes they are resolved. Well, I'm so glad that you brought that up because that takes us really to sort of the last major topic that I want to ask you about, which is the point at which the case goes quiet. Mm -hmm. And you write that after that sort of last spate of killings in the late 1970s, there's a long period of time where, to the best of our knowledge, the doodler kind of fades into the background. Now, regrettably, as you write, members of the LGBT community are still subject all throughout these years to deadly attacks mm -hmm. by other killers, and you devote a substantial amount of time to introducing us to those killers. I'm thinking of Randy Stephen Kraft, of Patrick Kearney, William Bonin, uh, David Likens, each of whom gets sort of a long mm -hmm. profile. And I have to say, you know, to our listeners out there that, um, you know, with serial killers in Kate's book, it's, it's kind of like buy one, get four free. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a crash course of you know what was going on in California in the 1970s kind of a lot um, but what's interesting is that you also it's not enough just to kind of lay these the stories of these individuals out these perpetrators because as as Laurie was saying earlier you know we we do not aim to glorify the criminal mm -hmm. here 
you are much more interested in the new theories in criminal psychology that are emerging around serial killers at this time. And uh, my question is, what did that research look like for you as you were sort of seeking to enter into the minds of those who were studying these behaviors and trying to make sense out of all of that? Yeah. So I would say that that side of the research, meaning really just getting into stats and different you know, interpretations of those statistics, that took a lot of time. It took a lot of connecting with um, different authorities. I was really thankful to Dr. Eric Hickey, who is at the forefront of serial killer research. I, after much, much confusion and working the system, I was finally able to get someone at the NCABC to, to speak with me. And as a side note, something really cool about that is, again, like we're saying, that the specific nature of these types of killers with this type of um, victim demographic is extremely under-researched. So through the course of getting what information I could get from them, basically the behavioral analysis unit now has a opportunity to uh, for students who are learning through that program to propose different thesis subjects. So as a result of this research and pointing out the lack of research within this specific demographic, it looks like in the next year or two, there's going to be at least one thesis focused specifically on this, which is really cool. That's um, fantastic. That's, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, I can't. I mean, there's all of these Anything I could find on what the FBI calls serial same-sex killers, there's all types of terms that people um, want to use today, and I want to respect that, but out of the um, efficiency seg for the FBI, that's what they refer to um, anyone who is murdering someone of the same gender or sex. So... Mm -hmm. All of that data is always kind of a subset of a subset of a subset that gets a page or two. You might have a book on serial killers that's 500 pages long, and you'll get a couple pages on these guys. Um, Mm. So that took a lot of of work. It meant sifting through, you know, big publications to kind of get to just those few pages. So it really took me um, connecting with – like I said, Dr. Hickey. Also, Dr. Alan Branson was essential to this book. He is retired FBI, and he really lent his expertise to looking at this case, looking at kind of the minutia that I might not have been mm-hmm. thinking about. But like with all other research, because it wasn't a case that has been covered and written about extensively and all of that stuff, you really have to kind of piece together what you have and and just try to make those per- person-to-person connections. Because if you're hoping to just gather a bunch of news articles or a bunch of um, APA articles or anything like that, it's not going to be as helpful to you. Because unless you make that human-to-human connection on a topic like this and have a contact that you can get on the phone or get on email and say, have this weird question, mm-hmm. um, you're not going to get very far because it's just not a topic that has been covered that much. Let me ask you, there's a 
passage on page 83, which I would love for you to just read for us. It's the one where you describe how the data squares with what's known to the doodler. And while you're getting there, Laurie, it raises an interesting question from your perspective, which is, how do you advise your authors on achieving a balance of sources as they are writing about complicated topics or topics in, in which there are more questions than answers, right? I mean, law enforcement are one source, but they are just one source, right? I mean, you can have academics, right? You can have other journalists who might have expertise in the case. And so do you do you counsel your authors to kind of run the gamut of all different possible perspectives, or do you tell them to sort of focus on what seems most productive at the time? So it really depends on the background of the author and how they're approaching the case. Um, mm -hmm. Kate, definitely with her specific writer background, was able to really delve into this book in a very productive way, like in terms of coming into it without the biases that law enforcement might and without um, the biases of, of, you know, a journalist might. So it was really interesting mm -hmm. to see her uh, develop that voice as she went along with her manuscript. Um, I've had a lot of authors come to me with these kind of cases, which is very common, who do have a background in law enforcement. And mm -hmm. one of the hardest things to do is to break them of police report language. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because it's just, it's very specific vernacular and it is extremely, you know, limiting in terms of like connecting with your reader because it's just really distancing yourself from whatever happened, you know, but that's, that's how they view the, you know, the beginning of the case is that's, it's a case file. And so that's where they start. And then kind of drawing out a little bit more of the humanity and, you know, making sure that they've gone back and uh, talk to the victim's family, or if the, you know, if, the, if it's a, a, a deeply historical case, you know, reading more about the victim's family or interviewing community members who, you know, might know a little bit more. So it's really taking what the author brings to the table and just kind of expanding the scope um, to make sure that we're, you know, getting as much a, a well-rounded book as we can. Introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. The type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Kate, did you find the passage? Yeah. Which uh, paragraph are you looking at? Which first word? Uh, so how does this data square? So how does this data square with what is known of the doodler? A comparison of facts shows him to be an outlier in some respects, while also fitting snugly within the confines of known statistics. His choice of victims fits within the parameters of the study pool. 
that his known murder sites were not in his home, his car, or his victim's home is more unique. The locations of his attacks on his surviving victims, their apartments, is a more common factor. The age when he began his murders, approximately 19 to 21, is a commonality shared with the entire sample group, with only 2.9% of the studied murders perpetrated by stabbing the doodler lies within the narrowest margin in the range of modus operandi. Thank you. Uh, I wanted you to bring that out because it, it does speak to what Laurie's describing here. That sense of, there's a word hovering in the background here, which is synthetic, right? You're weaving together, you're synthesizing information from a bunch of different sources in order to arrive at a kind of portrait of this person who remains unapprehended. And because that person remains unapprehended, these synthetic portraits are all that researchers and law enforcement really have to go on. These sort of sense of um, likelihoods, tendencies, and sketches themselves. There's that kind of interesting irony there, isn't there? Yes, exactly. And it, it is this piecemeal, you know, there's like a thread, you know, there's certain things that are very common. There are other things that are very rare um, and to see someone with all of that combined is interesting. And also something to really keep in mind is that this is assuming that we are only looking at a serial killer who stabbed people. Mm -hmm. And we look at other cases that some of them have signatures, some of them don't, some of them, there's not always a uniform, complete pattern so we're doing the best that we can in terms of let's look at the cases that uh, the incidents that we feel very confident were the same person. Mm -hmm. um, but just that in alone is, is tricky because a lot of serial killers don't do everything exactly the same every, every single time. So um, it was really important to me that I took, you know, these various perspectives, what, law enforcement thought of how they profiled him versus perpetrators who we know pretty much everything that we can know about them, right? Their childhoods, their trigger events before their murders, how they selected their victims, you know, all of those things. That's really the only thing we can do in trying to get new ideas behind the doodler is let's try to look at everything that we do have on this topic, not just on these murders. So when the case itself goes quiet, it doesn't mean that there is nothing to say. You have to consider other avenues, both as an investigator in law enforcement and as a researcher or a historian uh, coming afterwards. Now, listeners of Crime Capsule will remember our interview with Tobin Gilman, another History Press author, and his book on the McGlincy killings in uh, very nearby, Campbell, California, which is now part of San Jose. In that particular case, the killer simply got away. And whether it was through disappearing into the Santa Clara Valley, maybe he died there, maybe he was able to flee the state, uh, we're not entirely sure. But once he disappeared, both to uh, police and to historians uh, sort of going in search of him, um, Tobin was forced to deal with the trail went completely cold, mm -hmm. just completely cold, right? And, and yet, Tobin, as an author, was 
presented with the kind of litany of tips of uh, presumed sightings, mm-hmm. of false sightings of the killer, and that itself became material for mm-hmm. the afterlife of his particular story. So my my question for you guys is, what were your options at this particular point in order to continue to tell the story? It's a really great point. That's exactly what happened. And in this case, we don't have anywhere near, you know, we don't have sightings, we don't have reports, we have a, co- a handful of things that happened in 1975 and 76, and that's it. So the way that I looked at it was, you know, kind of what I was alluding to before, which is I tried to look at it as a reader and say, what would I want to know more of? What were the questions that I, as a reader and a researcher, would immediately have as soon as this case goes cold? First thing I thought of was I want to know Mm -hmm. anything and everything that is remotely relative to this case, that is remotely comparable that you can glean some information from. And I found a few and I just felt like as a reader, you know, going into this book that it is an unsolved case, you know, that part, but to get that satisfaction of feeling like you walk away from this case, knowing more about the subject in general, the, the serial murder of gay men, Um, You really need to, you need more than the Doodler case because the Doodler case simply does not have enough to fully illustrate the depth of violence that the LGBTQ community was experiencing. You have to go outside of that case in order to really start to understand this was so much bigger than this one man. Mm. Um, And this was not something that, you know, got the attention and other serial killers, like you're saying, simply stopped. And we don't know if it's because they died. We don't know if it's, you know, in some instances, I think it's pretty obvious that they wanted a lot of attention and then that kind of waned and that was the end of it. We don't know what happened with this guy, but we have cases that we do know what happened. So to touch on those and get information that the reader, including me, I go, that sounds like that's something that is worth considering or, okay, that is different than what we're seeing in this case. Why is it different? Why do these other cases have similarities that they don't share with the doodler? That's where I wanted the story to go because that was the question that I immediately just had. Laurie, what is your approach to guiding a writer when the well begins to run dry? Cold cases are are tough because we know going in that there is no neat resolution, but there's always something to further along, you know, to, and in this case, Kate was able to, you know, expand the reader's ideas of, of where to look, what we're looking at, the kind of things that overall the LGBTQ community deals with. And that was a really, really great way to kind of, um, show the reader a potential future um, in the in the you know it, it, if this case ever did get resolved, these are the ways that it could be um, done, and you know assuring the reader that law enforcement's still looking into it is really important. Um, 
that was that was a really good piece that she included towards the end of the book is making sure that like as as a reader uh we knew that this wasn't necessarily the end but mm. it's all we knew for this moment um and i i think as long as the reader comes away with a sense that you know they learned a lot more about some killings that they never would have known about and introduce them to some, you know, dangers uh, of living in the world that these victims lived in and kind of, you know, expanded their awareness, I think is, is kind of the ultimate goal of the book. I want to add to what Lori's saying in the sense that there, the other thing that was extremely important to me in this book was to not just represent these murders and to represent these victims, but to represent the resiliency of the gay community in San Francisco. They did not take this line down. They didn't, they knew they couldn't rely on SFPD the way that they should have been able to. I really wanted to make it clear to the reader that this was more than victimization and trauma. This is also a story of triumph, of courage, of um, just not taking it. And the examples that, you know, you see throughout the book of the community um, protecting itself Mm -hmm. and effectively, might I add, um, that's a huge part of this story for me is, is to understand that this wasn't, this was very scary, but the, uh, this was not the gay community, um, pulled up in their homes with the, with the curtains drawn, you know, afraid to go every night. There was a defiance and a resiliency that I think is really a huge, huge, huge part of the gay community in San Francisco. Your portrayal in particular of the Butterfly Brigades, I mean, I I kind of was thinking that so often local law enforcement will, in towns across America, you know, will stage sort of a night out against crime and everybody's supposed to kind of get together on their block and it's supposed to be a a big sort of show of support for, um, you know, neighborhood solidarity and, and, and so forth. And that's all well and good, but the Butterfly Brigades, I mean, they made every night a night out against crime. (laughs) It was really impressive. Yeah, and it was do not mess with them. Do not mess with them. They all, you know, even the the current lead inspector on the Doodler case himself, you know, he grew up in the city and he remembers going to a donut shop near 18th and Castro and, you know, a, a gay man was getting hassled and within... 30 seconds, you heard the whistles, you heard the radios, you heard the, you heard the, the uh, yelling and all of that kind of came crashing down within, within a few minutes. Mm. The Doodler Murders will be published in just a few short weeks. What is the state of the investigation now? You've spoken with the current commander of the force, Daniel Cunningham. Have there been any developments since your book went to press? Um, nothing that I can really talk that much about yet because it's still very nebulous. I will say that I... Th- that sounds like a yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, nothing that is... that would be. It would be more confusing to readers because there's such a lack of definitive anything around it. I will say hmm. that... I feel this case is going to be closed and it's going to be closed sooner rather than later. Whether or not it is the suspect that um, has been 
the primary focus over the years or not, I think that there is enough there to just lock this thing down and end it. And they've doubled the reward money to $200,000. They raised it from 100000 when they first uh, reopened this investigation. I know it's a priority for them, but it does not hurt for the public to, just as they did with the Golden State Killer, become more aware and put the pressure on law enforcement, but primarily crime labs to really put urgency on these these types of cases where perpetrators are aging out and the opportunity for justice, if, if it even exists, is, you know, dimming every day. So, yeah, I think that there's nothing, I don't want to say any major, there's nothing major that I'm sitting on um, that I can't share yet, but sure. ideas, ideas that have been shaped since, since the book. So, Laurie, in that moment, Speaking for the press, what choices do you have, say for the sake of argument that Kate is right, that within a reasonable period of time, um, there is a major new development that actually does necessitate changing the story that has been published? I mean, as an editor at that point, do you delay publication of a book in order to bring the new information on board? Or do you issue another edition with an afterword? What's the, what's the route here? There's really no specific protocol. A lot of the times when we create a book, it's kind of a time capsule. So the book itself might remain as it is because that was the information that we had when it was published. And then, you know, at some point, perhaps we might do a revised edition, depending on interest and all of those, you know, press things that we have to think about the work that Kate would have to put into it, you know, if she's available for it, there's a lot of different factors. So no, we're not going to delay the publication of a book this close to, it's probably already printed and ready to go. So, <laughs> so that's not something that we usually do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, <laughs> it is already it's already ready, ready to go. go. So no, we're not going to like, <laughs> you know, we're not going to take that book off the shelves. It's ready. Um, and the other thing, you know, I, I like to, like a book is, is it is a time capsule. It is all the information that we had at that time when the author wrote it. And, you know, even if, if the book itself isn't updated, like the Kate can continue to go on with her talks, with her, you know, presentations that she does and have like additional great information that she can share with her readers. Um, and that can be a great way to enhance hmm. the book that she has already. Uh, so that they can get a lot more background on the final outcome. In that sense, that would probably be the main way that the book would be updated, would be literally through Kate herself. But yeah, like we've gone back and done some updated versions of books in the past. It's not a common practice for us, um, but it just happened. Well, with respect to that particular point, I thought, you know, one of the most beautiful parts of this particular Um, book, if I can use that word, is the way in which you treated the victims with such dignity and you showed their photographs and told their stories in ways that had really never been told before in quite a lot of detail. And it it seemed to me as I was reading that if there is any uh, place where the the ongoing conversation can be had and the ongoing attempt to remember them properly uh, is is going to take shape. It's right there in in those moments. And I'm, I can only imagine that 
any surviving family members, any surviving acquaintances of those victims are going to be incredibly grateful for what you've done for them. Thank you. That means so much to me. My last question is for both of you. You said earlier that you knew going in that this was a cold case and this was an unsolved case and those were the stakes up front. Those were the chips on the table, right? Even so, was it difficult having to end this story on a question mark rather than a period? Both of you. Um, I will say for me, I have always been more interested in unsolved cases than solved cases. And that's my whole life. It's like, but I get that from my grandfather. We would sit and watch literally unsolved mysteries like every single night. I like the fact that there is a question mark because both as a writer and a reader, when I close that book, depending on how I feel about it, that could just be the start of the journey for me, right? Hmm. That could just be, I, I want to learn more about this. Why isn't there more about it? Look into this too. I can try to start a campaign to get this, this case looked at by other independent researchers. There's just so much opportunity with an unsolved case versus a solved case. And I understand why a lot of writers wouldn't want to touch an unsolved case, but it's actually what I preferred. I like leaving the reader with the opportunity to get involved on their own, which is whether it be listening to a podcast like this or, um, posting about this story on their social media and getting other people to know about it. Um, there are things that a reader can do to actually move this case forward. And I think that that is so cool. And that's something that you can't do with a case that's already been closed. As an editor, cold cases are tricky because readers do often want that conclusion. You know, they want to know how the case ends. Um, and usually that is kind of like the solving is that the end for them. And when it's not there, it can be a little difficult um, for an author to kind of wrap it up in a satisfying way. Um, I think one of the main concerns I always have as an editor going into a cold case is that the author isn't trying to solve the case. And I don't mean like they shouldn't be, you know, doing their research. And But I don't expect them to find the end. To me, that can be a very dangerous way to get into the story because it, it makes the book about them. Hmm. There are some fantastic books that do this very, very well, but that's not uh, what we're looking for as a, as a press. Like we really, really want to bring the reader into that era of history to talk about the people who were there, the eras that we're talking about, the, the you know, the victims, the serial killers. Um, we're creating kind of a little world for them to enter. and when the author is the focus that can make it difficult for them to really immerse themselves in what's going on. Um, so that's something that is, can be trickier with a cold case than uh, a case that's already solved. That notion, Kate, that you offer that when you close the book, that that could be just the start of the journey. I think that is that just perfectly encapsulates everything that um, that you've both been been speaking towards here, and I, I cannot imagine a better place uh, to to end on. You know, if there's one lesson to be learned as well 
though it's to never lose hope. Sometimes cases do take years to be solved, uh, but solved they, they are. One of our very first guests, Rita Schuler from South Carolina, cracked a case that she herself had opened as a law enforcement officer 40 years earlier in her life. And who knows what might emerge from the publication of this particular book. New information, dormant memories waking up. You never know Do you? You never know. Well, that's the joy. Kate, Laurie, thank you both so much. This has been a total pleasure. It's been a privilege to have you. I so, so, so deeply appreciate both having me on here as well as the encouragement on the work. It really, truly does mean the world to me. And and I thank you so much. And to Laurie, who I would not have been able to get through this project without. My fantastic editor who really really made this project so meaningful. It was really nice to talk to you. I don't usually get to be a part of this. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Our guests have been Kate Zeliznok and Laurie Krill, author and editor of The San Francisco Doodler Murders, published this month by The History Press. To order a copy of The Doodler Murders, visit your local independent bookstore, our Crime Capsule show page on bookshop.org, or Arcadia Publishing. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with Arcadia Publishing and the History Press and is a member of the Killer Podcasts Network. Thanks as always to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. Season two of the show will launch very soon, so stay tuned. Until then, I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. To learn more about Evergreen, offering shows in every genre, visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network. You can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcast.com.